The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Around the time that we planted Redeeming Grace about four years ago, I began to realize the challenge that exists in transitioning from preaching three to four times a year on a Sunday morning to preaching three to four times a month on Sunday mornings. There are some obvious challenges, such as learning how to study more quickly and write more quickly, but there are also a few challenges that I was not anticipating. For example, after I had been preaching regularly for about six months, I realized that my vocabulary was very repetitive, and I naturally relied on very samey words or phrases constantly. And worse than that, my sermons were taking the exact same form from week to week, and I was consistently coming back to the same application point. They recommend that you do this, and every pastor I know that does this hates it, but you're supposed to listen back to your own sermons and cringe every time you hear something. You just can't believe I said that that way. So I became determined that I was going to grow through some of these rookie mistakes and become a better preacher. So I got a bunch of preaching books, and I began reading through them. And one of the things that all of them said was this, you need to become a better writer to become a better preacher. So naturally, what do I do? I buy a bunch of writing books, and I began studying how to be a better writer. And one of these books that I began reading ruined books and movies and television for me forever. This particular book, which I won't tell you because I don't want you to be ruined as well, explains the core elements that are present in every story that has basically ever been written. The author references more than 250 stories to show how the storyline is essentially functionally exactly the same for the main character. Every time now that I watch a movie, I kind of get an idea of what's going on in the main character, what style of, of, of character this is, And then I know exactly when the plot points are going to happen and exactly what is coming and exactly where the plane is going to land. And that's terrible, so don't read the book. But one of the points that is common to all stories, according to this author, is what he calls the ordeal. He describes it it like this. He says, the simplest secret of the ordeal is this. Heroes must die so that they can be reborn. The dramatic movement that audiences enjoy more than anything else is death and rebirth. In some way, in every story, heroes face death or something like it. Their greatest fears, their failure, failure of an enterprise, the end of a relationship, or the death of an old personality. Most of the time, they magically survive this death and are literally or symbolically reborn to reap the consequences of having cheated death. They have passed the main test of being a hero. End quote, and accurately stated. The reason that these kinds of story arcs resonate with the human soul is that this experience of being brought low and being raised up is common to all human existence. As we will see in our text today, this is the transition from Joseph just going from being a good guy to being the hero of the story. But we will also see how Joseph's value was limited and designed by God to foreshadow the true hero that was to come. Please join me now in prayer once again as we ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. God, we thank you that your word is not just a story. We thank you that this 
these texts that we will read today about Joseph is not just a story or even just history, but this is your story of your kingdom being built on this earth through your plan. So God, I pray that today as we come to the word, you would help us to see your sovereign hand at work in the life of Joseph and in a similar way see the sovereign hand of God working in our lives. And I ask that as we come before this text today, you would see, we would see the glory of Jesus Christ even in the life of Joseph. Lord, I pray that today you would give me unction to proclaim the gospel faithfully and boldly. Lord, I ask that you would give me wisdom and discernment about exactly what to say. If there is anything absent from my notes that you desire to be here, please impress that upon my heart and mind. And if there's anything present in my notes that you desire for us to ignore or miss today, I pray, Lord, that you would remove that from my mind. Lord, I ask that today each one of us would be connecting with the Holy Spirit in such a way that he would change us and cause us to be like Jesus. Lord, we desire to know Christ and to be like Christ. We need you for this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to make our way through this very extensive text today, we're going to break it down into the following three points. Point number one, humiliation. Point number two, exaltation. And point number three, salvation. Let's begin with humiliation. First, let me recap for you a little bit of Pastor Neglia's masterful sermon from last week and see how it is that Joseph came to be in prison. As you remember, Joseph was upright and he was blameless. And ironically, it was actually because of his refusal to sin that he was cast into prison. It was his refusal to sin with Potiphar's wife that caused her scorn to lie about him and give false accusation against him, resulting in his imprisonment. His righteous actions resulted in false allegations, which led him to Pharaoh's prison. There is a big difference between brought low, being brought low because you deserve it and being unjustly and unfairly abased. Now, we're not certain how long Joseph remained in prison, but it was enough time for him to gain the favor of the captain of the guard. Let me just pause for a moment and tell you a little bit about the prisons of this time and place. In general, the easiest way to keep prisoners from escaping was to dig a big hole in the ground. Like Joseph had already been thrown into a pit when he was in the land of, of, of Canaan, where his brothers were keeping him, in a similar way, they would make large pits and they would throw the prisoners into them so that the only way they could escape is if somebody lowered a rope to them. This was the easiest way to get rid of them and to get them out of the line of sight of the important people in their region. But it was also a very dark and dingy and dirty and disgusting hole where nobody could have strong health for a long period of time. In fact, for most prisoners... Most of the time, the only way you had food to eat is if somebody brought it to you. It's not like our modern prison systems where you have television in your room and you have three meals a day and you have a weight room and an outdoor whatever. They had nothing. They could go nowhere. And so oftentimes people would get sick and there was no doctor to heal them. So instead they would simply die. For this reason, scholars don't believe he was probably there for more than a couple years before we see him having this interaction with the two servants of Pharaoh. But I want to, for the next few minutes, examine the character of Joseph that we see during this time of humiliation in order to highlight his godliness. Verses 1 through 4 reads this way. 
Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. As we've seen at every stage so far, Joseph has proven himself to be a capable leader who was worthy to be set over the others. Even in the lowly prison, it was evident that he was worthy of being given leadership. The guard was not being foolish when he placed the cupbearer and the baker into Joseph's charge. So before moving forward, it's worth making note here that these two servants of Pharaoh are incredibly significant in his courts. The two positions are two positions of high honor. The cupbearer was kind of like a right-hand man to the king. This is the guy that was always near him. I like to drink water often. I, I have water or some kind of liquid near me because it's healthy. It's good. I like to be refreshed. Well, Pharaoh could not take one sip of water without this man first drinking from it. Oftentimes, this man would also be a trusted advisor so that the king would ask him questions. He was one of the people that the king trusted to give him advice. And for some reason, he had offended the king. Also, we see the chief baker. The chief baker was significant because this man was the one man responsible for every single morsel that Pharaoh consumed. We don't know exactly why Pharaoh was angry with these men, but it has been suggested by many that the one thing that unites these two people, these two figures, is the threat of poisoning, which was very common and often was the main threat that royalty faced. It was the easiest way to assassinate somebody without yourself being killed. So maybe there was an attempted assassination, or maybe, and more likely, the Pharaoh just got sick that maybe he just had indigestion, and that resulted in an extended stay vacation in prison for these two servants. Verse 5 tells us, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Notice at this point, Joseph has nothing to do with these people's dreams. At this point, in fact, there's no way for him to even know that they've had dreams unless he saw them and responded to their concern with compassion. Notice how he sees their distress and he seeks to comfort them in the next two verses, verse 6 and 7. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? I've had a lot of bosses. Rarely do any of them ever say, why are you downcast today? What's wrong? What's going on? Are you okay? Do you need something? Are you feeling all right? And especially if it's just because I've had a bad dream and I'm not going to be like twiddling my thumbs. Yeah, I had a nightmare last night. Let me tell you about it. That's not a normal conversation that people often or regularly have with somebody who is over them or over their care. But Joseph seems to care about these two people. He doesn't just watch over them because he's required to. He watches over them seemingly because he wants to. He desires to care for them. He wants to serve them. He wants to show love to them. 
And the Lord was with Joseph, and he gave Joseph the ability and the wisdom to interpret both dreams, and he gave the baker the bad news that he was going to be killed in a matter of three days. And the text explains that he would be hanged. It says that he would be hanged on a tree. Oftentimes the way that that's translated in our English translation is hanged, and we think of it like a noose around the neck. More likely this is that he was beheaded and then impaled onto a tree, which is the main form of execution during this time of Egypt, which is quite disturbing, but also would explain the birds eating his body, that he would be presented as uh, never do what this guy did in front of the kingdom. But then he also tells the cupbearer that in three days you will be restored. Now Joseph knew that this was his chance to be heard. If I can just get this guy out of here, and in three days he's going to be standing right next to the most powerful man in the world, I've got an opportunity here. He's going to be able to talk to the Pharaoh about me. This is my chance to have the ear of the one guy who could get me out of here. So he says to the cupbearer, verses 14 and 15, Only, just one thing I ask of you, remember me. That's it. Just remember me, and when all is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Just as Joseph had said, the baker was executed, and the cupbearer was restored as part of Pharaoh's birthday celebration three days later. Crazy birthdays this guy must have had. But we read in verse 23, Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It's amazing. How did I get out of here? How did, I, how did this whole thing take place? Of course, as this guy was going to bed one night and, and, and he was free from prison, the cupbearer must have run through his mind, Man, I'm so thankful that that guy was in that prison. He forgot. How does that happen? As we're going to see that this was the divine hand of God giving a divine forgetfulness to this man. For if he had said something to Pharaoh, it's very unlikely Pharaoh would have released him that day. But yet, he kept his mouth closed and his mind empty until the right time. Two more years go by, and Joseph continued in the prison, and he had been sold into slavery and then falsely accused and sentenced to prison, and then even those whom he served abandoned him until he was utterly and completely alone. Which brings us now to our second point, exaltation. In Egypt, the Pharaoh had unparalleled power and authority. He alone made the decision about who gets to live and who is going to die. And that is the kind of guy that you don't want to be angry. That's the kind of guy that you want to get a good night's sleep. That's the kind of guy that if he's angry, nobody sleeps well. At this time in Egyptian history, the Pharaoh was believed to be a god, and they believed that Pharaoh, who was himself a god, would communicate with the other gods on the plain when he would sleep. So this dream was, according to their understanding of, of theology, was a divine statement from Ra or Bat or Osiris or one of the other deities in their pantheon. And so that is how they communicated to this Pharaoh responsible for the sun rising every day. So Pharaoh had a pair of dreams, one of cows and other of heads of grain. And in Egypt, this is probably important to understand, it's not weird that the cows are in the Nile. Cows always do this in Egypt. To this day, they do this in Egypt because it's so hot and because there are so many bugs, they will go down and they will kind of float around in the shallow part of the water to keep the heat and the bugs away from them. But what is weird is that cows, even today, don't eat each other. 
They are herbivores. So to have these seven gaunt cows to come up out of the water and to begin eating the seven healthy cows, that would be a pretty weird, bizarre, strange dream. And then he has a second dream very similar to it of these ears of grain. And now it's important also to understand that grain was very significant to Egypt. It's called the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. In fact, the only reason the Roman Empire ever became great is because they would get their grain very cheaply from Egypt, who would produce more than anyone else in the world at that time. They produced tons and tons and tons, literally, of grain each year. But then he has these dreams of this seven uh, ears of grain that were gaunt, being consuming those that were healthy. By the grace of God, the right-hand man of the king just so happened to know somebody who might be able to tell the Pharaoh what this means. It says that nobody could interpret, which means the king must have gone on a search. We see something very similar, of course, in the book of Daniel, where the king can't figure out what his dream means, so he asks everybody in his court, and nobody can tell him the interpretation. But then, just then, the cupbearer seems to remember, I know somebody who can interpret dreams, verses 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, So it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Notice that the cupbearer conveniently left that part out about where Joseph had told him to make sure to speak to Pharaoh in regards to this two years earlier. But then Pharaoh, and we see in verse 14 and 15, called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Once again, Joseph now has a chance. Think about this. Joseph has been poorly treated for years at this point, and he has an opportunity to be set free. All he has to say is, yes, I can interpret your dream. Think about it. Even if he can't, if he just says, I can do it, and then makes something up, nobody could disprove him. It's a dream. All he has to say is, yes, that describes me to a T. But here we see the stunning response that Pharaoh was certainly not expecting. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. It is not in me. It is not in me. In me. This, as one uh, scholar put it, is an explosive denial. Nope. It's not me. I can do nothing. Surely that's not what Pharaoh was expecting. He is not the kind of guy that is used to people saying, I can't do that for you. It's not in me. And then he says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph is not interested in taking credit that does not belong to him. He gives all glory to God. Joseph looks right into the eyes of the man who says, I am a God, and says, no, God, the true God, he alone can give you the interpretation. What a powerful picture of humility that is. Last week, I was speaking with another pastor on the phone, and uh, this man began to say some very kind things about our church and about me in particular, and my immediate reaction in my heart was not like Joseph. My pride really began to puff up, and then the pastor said at kind of the end of this 
paragraph of nice things, he said, I am so thankful for all that God is doing there. And it was like he took a knife to the balloon of my pride and just gone. It was destroyed because he reminded me just in that small phrase of encouragement, this is not hollow flattery. This is a reminder of genuine thankfulness that God is at work at your church, that the reason that we are doing anything here is because Christ promises he will build his church. And I was reminded that if there's anything good in me, it's not because of me, but in spite of me. And as Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not in me. Brothers and sisters, when you think you have reason to boast, you are merely deceiving yourself. For what do you have that you did not receive? Never lift up your head above your station. As we are talking now about humiliation and exhortation, remember that we are never to elevate ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Joseph could have easily claimed credit for his ability to interpret dreams. Yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm that guy. But he entrusted himself to God. He did not attempt to take matters into his own hands, but was pleased to do what was right by letting God bring about his own purposes. Joseph explained then the meaning of the dreams to Pharaoh, and he revealed that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Famine would devastate a nation if it lasted for a single year. For example, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, Somalia had below average rainfall for the year 2016 and 17. Not a complete drought, but just a couple inches below average for 16 and 17. And then in 2018, they had two months of no rain. Two months. And here's what they say in an article presented to the United Nations. Roughly 60% of the nation's livestock have been completely wiped out. 60%. Roughly 65% of their society is employed in the livestock industry, which means their country is now desperate for food. 60% of their food source in their country gone after two months. And the only reason it wasn't even worse is because the UN delivered to them more than 93 million liters of water for the animals, as well as dry food for over 900,000 cows and goats. Otherwise, the crisis would not just have been at 60%, but much higher. And that's two months. Now imagine that being stretched out in that African land for over seven years. Nobody could survive that long. It would mean the complete abandonment of their entire empire. Those massive pyramids that we see that are still there to this day, there would be nobody living at the base of them. There would be no Cairo. There would be no massive cities. There would be everyone deserting that land for search of anywhere where they could find food. And to their sadness and sorrow, they would never find it. Because as we see, this was not a localized famine. Joseph doesn't even seem to take a breath between explaining the dream and then giving the answer to the problem. Look at verse 33 through 36. He he concludes telling him the, the meaning of the dream and says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the Uh, good years that are seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. 
That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Pharaoh probably looked around the room. I imagine there being other people there who are his wise men or his dream interpreters that he would normally go to. And he looks around and thinks to himself, who else could this be? Who could I put over all of the nation's food stores? And he looks into the eyes of each one of his advisors. And then finally he stares them down and each one realizes, I can't do this. And then he looks into the eyes of Joseph and says, can we find a man like this? In whom the Spirit of God, in whom is the Spirit of God? Listen to the way Pharaoh speaks to Joseph in verses 39 and following. He says, Since God has shown you all of this, there is no discerning and no one as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on the hand of Joseph, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set over all the land of e- him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph woke up that morning on the ground, in the dirt, in a prison, and he went to bed that night in the guest chambers of the king. He had spent that morning watching over prisoners, and he sat down that afternoon at the right hand of the majesty of Egypt, the ruler over the world's most powerful empire and economy. He was brought low. But then he was exalted. And of course, you've probably already seen the connection here to Christ. It's flowing off the page. As we read about Joseph, it's impossible not to see the declaration that there is a great king who would be exalted after being humiliated. He was brought low, and he was exalted. Joseph was cast out of his home in Canaan, but Jesus voluntarily left his home in heaven. Jesus was likewise falsely accused and likewise did not defend himself. Jesus likewise was abandoned by those who he helped in the time of their greatest need. And much more than Joseph, Jesus suffered and he did so alone. In a much greater way, Jesus experienced the lowest form of humiliation, death on a cross. But thank God that's not the end of his story. Pharaoh exalted Joseph and gave him a name above all others and required that every knee bow to him. That word that he must bow the knee that word that we read there is still used in Egypt today. And they use that whenever there is a camel and they require the camel to bow its knee. They will say this word and snap at them and the camel will get down on its knees. This is a word that is a command. It is a declaration. You must bow your knee. And this is what they said to Joseph as they would ride through the middle of their city. Bow the knee to him. Pharaoh's not even being bowed to, apparently. It's this guy who is being bowed to above all. Pharaoh Pharaoh told Joseph nobody was even allowed to move a hand or foot in their, their entire country without Joseph's permission. In other words, this guy is now their absolute master or lord. And that should sound deeply familiar. Listen to the words of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, as it describes the humiliation and exaltation of Christ in this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humiliation. But then comes exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He was brought low, but then glorified. And we still haven't answered the question, though, why? Why was Joseph forced by God to encounter that prison? Or much more significantly, why was Jesus required to endure the cross? And the answer to that comes to our final point this morning, salvation. Joseph ruled over the nation with wisdom. Because of his brilliant plan, the nation was prepared for the coming famine. We read in verse 49, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. There was literally too much grain to keep count. But those days of plenty came to an end, just as God promised in the dream. And when that took place, the famine fell over the whole land, not just Egypt, but notice what it says in verse 54. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. There was nowhere else to go. There's nowhere to escape. The only place that had bread was Egypt. Don't miss this because this is the entire point of these two chapters. This is the most important thing that we have seen so far in the life of Joseph. In fact, I think in the picture of Joseph's typological foreshadowing of Jesus, this is probably by far the most important connection. Verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says, you do. The, the equation is very simple. You need bread. The world has no bread. Only Joseph can give you bread. Bread is a very common metaphor in the Bible for salvation. In a society where starvation was relatively common, people had a tangible connection to the reality of people who can't eat and how they find themselves dead on the street with a distended belly. The children of Israel were given bread from heaven. Six days a week, they would go outside and gather this manna from the ground. The prophets also spoke about bread that you could buy from the Lord without price. But we don't see this metaphor of bread get paid off until we reach the New Testament when we see the bread of heaven, Jesus himself, the bread of life. Verses 56 and 57 says this, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Here's the bad news. The whole world is in the most severe famine imaginable. Not a famine caused by lack of rain, but a famine caused by lack of God himself. We are separated from him. We are incapable of being near him because of our own sin. But Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is a place of satisfaction. Go to Joseph, all the earth, to get bread. But to you I say, go to Jesus, all the earth, 
who gives you himself. John 6 is the, the longest recorded sermon in all of the book of John. And at the end of it, almost everybody leaves Jesus. He has just done the great miracle of feeding the 5,000, probably a total of twenty to 30,000 total people. But the disciples gather around him after everyone leaves because of his sermon. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says to them, Do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. For you who are still running from God, I want you to know that there is a genuine satisfaction in being made right with God. Having your sins forgiven and beginning to live a life of obedience, that's great. And that's significant. Those are not things to scoff at. Those are huge realities. But they are not the primary source of our joy. Jesus himself is our joy. And without him, you will always be like a goat wandering around in the desert, searching for bread and searching for water, and you will never find anything because it doesn't exist. But if you turn to Christ, you will find rest for your soul. So trust in him. Believe that his death was for you and for your sins. Believe that when he died, he paid for them, and that when he rose, he bought your liberty. And I want to say to you who believe that, you who are Christians, those who are the primary audience of mine today, I want to encourage you today not to forget the bread of life who truly satisfies. We do not start with Jesus and then somehow graduate to something better. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more. So as simple as this might sound, I plead with you to do those things which stoke the fire of your first love with Christ. Spend time with him in prayer. Listen to good sermons throughout the week. Spend time around the people of God who constantly point you to Christ. Learn of him from the Bible for he alone has the words of eternal life. Let's pray. God, I ask that today, as we have considered the life of Joseph, you would cause us much more to consider the life of Christ. Lord, I thank you for the life that we have because of your Son, that we can be truly saved. Lord, I thank you that the people who lived in the region of Egypt during that time were saved because of the bread that was given to them physically. But I thank you for the salvation we received because of the bread that was given to us spiritually. We thank you for your son who has given himself on the cross for us. Lord, I ask that today we would be immensely thankful and that we would live our lives based upon this reality. Lord, I pray for the continuing preaching through this book of Genesis as we see the life of Joseph in the way that he operates moving forward. And I ask that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.